hopefully, uh, again, you did receive the handout. I've entitled the uh, message this morning, what to, what to Do When You Feel Abandoned by God. <clears throat> I have uh, taught this uh, psalm, this is a beloved psalm of mine, uh, that I have taught through the years, and uh, God in these recent weeks has given me even greater insight into the Word. The Word is marvelous that way. It's inexhaustible, and it meets us where we are, and a lot of times God has us to go through the events of life because it deepens our soul and allows the Word of God to take an even deeper root in our hearts. And maybe Maybe that's one of the byproducts uh, that's resulted in all that we've been through in the last three weeks as a family. Now, when I've taught this psalm before, I've entitled it uh, God's Waiting Room. But uh, I, have, I have discovered there's more here than just simply waiting in so, some sort of waiting room, like you would wait at Shepherdstown Family Practice to uh, go and see your family physician with a child or yourself. There are sometimes you're anxious and you're wondering, why am I waiting? There's frustration and, and all the rest. Psalm 13 uh, involves that, certainly it does, but it delves far deeper into the soul. For David, I discovered the author of the psalm is more than just waiting in God's waiting room. He, uh, he is going through a myriad of emotions uh, that, uh, that shout to us. Uh, encouragement, because uh, I'm certain that all of us have gone through such emotions, emotions of abandonment, somehow thinking that uh, God has, uh, has left us, or God has somehow um, turned his favor away from us. And we go through such periods of time like this in the waiting room. So it's in the waiting room, but uh, today, this morning, I want to delve a little bit deeper into that, into the emotions of perhaps feeling rejected, abandoned, um, all of this anguish of soul that uh, was going on inside David's heart while he was waiting uh, on the Lord. Now, it's only six little verses, and so I've entitled this, What to Do When You Feel Abandoned by, by God. Take your Bible, look at Psalm 13. And let me introduce it even more completely. Even though we know that God is always with us, He is. Lo, I am with you always. Right? We could all quote that. Matthew 28, part of the Great Commission. Or Hebrews 13, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. We know that. We know that cognitively. We know it up here. God is always with us. We know it also that he's omnipresent. We can never escape. Well, Psalm 139, we could go to the far-flung place. He's there. He's there. He's ubiquitous. His presence is everywhere. Everything stands in his presence, right? We know that. We know that to be true. Remember last week, uh, Asaph began with a theological plank. Surely God is good to Israel, to them who are pure heart. It begins with a truism, a theological plank that we know is true. This psalm is much like that as we think about it, for we know that it is true that God is with us, but here it is. There are times when you and I begin to doubt it. If we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest, 
It's true. We begin to doubt it. We all face hard times in this fallen world, post-Genesis 3 world of ours, and it's during those times, the times of hardness, disappointment, sadness, mourning, grief, loss, all of those, those bad, yucky times, my, that's my mother's word, yucky times that happen, it's during those times that we're most prone to feel abandoned by God. Certainly so, you admit with that. When things are high five and going my way, as Frank Sinatra saying, we don't feel abandoned by God, do we? We don't. We say, well, God is blessing. The showers of blessing. We feel God has favored us. He's turned his face upon us. It's shining upon us. It's all the other times that we experience in this life of ours. It's those times. It doesn't have to be. But it tends to be. We're prone to, uh, to feel that way. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak, Jesus said. Yet we rarely, here it is, we rarely tell anyone of such feelings at, at those times. For what will they think of us? Right? Especially in the cheap form of Christianity that appears in, in the 21st century here in America. I mean, the, the goofy ideas, like Christians are supposed to be happy, 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 smiling all the time. You know, that's a bunch of nonsense. Let's go over and interview Joseph and see during his 12 years of imprisonment for doing right, whether he was happy, 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 happy all the time. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Let's uh, go and interview Job. Right? Righteous man. God said, none like this guy. None like him. Now he's lost everything, even the support of his wonderful wife. Job, are you happy, 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 happy? No. We get this stupid idea. I don't know where it comes from especially. And yet I know there is a peace of God that passes understanding. I know that. And I know joy is a fruit of the Spirit. I know that. And we're to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. I remind you, Paul was in jail when he wrote that. Okay? And sometimes when we struggle with this sense of, God, where are you? I don't find Christians sharing that very much. Because what would my brother in Christ think? Something's wrong with you. I'm praying for you. You must be in deep sin. Well, it may be sin, and we feel that way, that, that sense of alienation from God. But it may not be sin as well, okay? I love it if we would just be more open as a people say, I'm struggling with this, you know? I've sort of plateaued in areas, and, and I, it's not like I wish we could do that more and have that gut honesty, in the acceptance of families. It's okay. I've been there. And it may hit me next week, you know. That's realism. That's really where we live. Now, God gives grace. Oh, marvelous. Even in the midst of tears, he does. But this idea of happy, 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 all that's nonsense. I don't know if it's from our charismatic uh, uh, friends. This, this idea, you know, we live above it all. Well, I, I don't think so. We live in a real world. The psalmist says how many times, you know, God is forced. What can man do to us? You know the answer to that? Jim Boyce said, plenty. He can do plenty to us. But God is always with us. 
And so I would love to see that. You know, the dying Voltaire uh, exclaimed, here's his quote, I'm abandoned by God and man. Now, he said that on his deathbed. Now, we're not surprised that this French atheist said this. It doesn't surprise us. He rejected God like this, wrote against him uh, all his life. I mean, and he died that way, hopeless in despair. What does surprise us is when we hear Christians tell us of such fears because it's so rare that we hear others say this when the reality is, I think it's a pretty common experience for even the redeemed of the Lord. I do. I do. Well, it's encouraging in our Psalm 13 to find the great spiritual giant David struggling with the feelings of being abandoned by God. If David had such feelings, and he did, and then he even expressed it, I'm saying, so can we. You can. Don't feel badly about it. Nobody's writing your name, blotting your name out of the, the, uh, the, the, the charter of life that's found in salvation alone. David did. Be encouraged. You're of the same stock. Isn't that good to know that? Sometimes we think we're all alone. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. i got news for you. We've all seen it. The greater degrees are less. It's true. There's sadness, sorrow, disappointment, brokenness. You know, the old homiletician used to say, preach with a broken heart to broken people and you'll never lack for an audience. He's right. He was exactly right. Exactly. David expresses it so wonderfully here. David wrote Psalm 13 in which he tells of his despair and how he overcame it. Now, he did. He overcame his despair, and we do well to imitate him in this. Now, there is in this, uh, there are in Psalm 13, six verses, and in these six short verses, I want us to make three observations of David's despair, helping us to overcome it. When it visits us, it will visit you. I can't tell you when, you may be there now. But when it does come and visit you, you need not camp out and stay there in that valley of despair, of abandonment. Now, a technical point of view, uh, the psalm, you know, is poetry. This is the Hebrew hymn book. And just of interest, uh, the way that it's written in three stanzas, we have three observations, one from each stanza, each of those have two verses each. And the way it's written, even in its form, suggests to us what I mean by that is the first stanza, verse five, 1 and 2 in the Hebrew, has five lines, then it goes to four lines, and finally the third strophe or stanza has three lines. And that the, the very form of the psalm, as well as the very content, moves from the tumultuous. The wild sea, the waves are just everywhere, and you can. David is that in verse 1 and 2, and the very structure shows that. And then it narrows down, and there's increasing calm and increasing, and finally, peace at the end in his own soul. And I'll say it again you get to the end of this, David's circumstance has not changed. He's still looking ahead, it's future tense. But there's a sense of peace that he has recovered that he had lost in verses 1 and 2 in the period of time that that was where he felt totally dejected and abandoned by the Lord God. Well, be sure of this, sooner or later in this life, 
such feelings of abandonment and despair will visit you and visit me. And we've already been there already, I'm sure. Well, verses 1 and 2 is the first observation. There are times in life when we, like David, will struggle with a sense that God has abandoned us. This is common, this despair. Let's read verses 1 and 2. How long, and you might want to circle how long, because we're going to note there are four times he's expressing here through repetition the greatness of his despair in this feeling of abandonment. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Well, David, A, David's feelings of being abandoned is, and the greatness of that abandonment is expressed by the four how longs. How long? How long? We've said how many times in the, uh, the uh, biblical text for emphasis, repetition is, is used. Now, when you take class notes and you've done this and the, the professor says something, you really emphasize it, you know it's going to be on the quiz. or the, You're underlining it and circling it and putting asterisks by it, meaning later, you better know this, you better know this, right? Well, in the ancient texts, our Bible texts, repetition is the way of the red underlined marker and the asterisk. Two times is a lot, verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus said, in other words, don't miss this, don't miss this, you're going to miss it, don't miss this. But four times here, in two, David is expressing the deepest anguish of his heart. And I don't know, in your heart and life, when you've been there, maybe it's been the sudden loss of a loved one in death. And you've wept and wept, and you were in the valley of tears, and, and it just, uh, it was all dark. And sometimes God turns the lights out to see us, if we'll keep walking, keep trusting, keep looking up, and... Those are growth times. Remember, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, there's more wisdom in the house of mourning than there is in the house of merriment or a party. There is, because we see life as it really is in a fallen world. Death, sorrow, brokenness, loss, all as a result of Genesis 3. Well, number one, uh, under A, as mentioned, such feelings are more common than it would appear in our life. People feel no one cares about them, and isn't that true? Most people don't care about you. Some may have a passing interest, um, but very few people really care. That's why it's important that we as a church are a loving, caring community of people that are there for each other. It is the mark of God's Spirit, each for the other, all for the Lord. All of you, we should love each other even from the heart. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Because out there in the lives that you and I live, people make, you may seem like they care, they may seem friendly, they may seem friendly, but when hard times comes, nobody's there. Look at Job's life. Very few. And the three friends that showed up didn't help him at all. Very few. Very few. But the community of the redeemed need to be there for each other. People feel that no one cares, and so then God must not care as well. They make that leap. 
Oftentimes, God, people know in, in God's community of people that God cares for them because it's through our hands and hugs and gifts and calls and notes. Right? Isn't it that way? And in the moment of darkness, when somebody shows up, it's like a ray of light or a ray of... It's the Lord through us. People think nobody cares. God doesn't care. Look at two. For the Christian... There is not much helpful material available to help at such times of depression, despondency, the feelings of despair. There's not. You check the Christian literature, and maybe it's from what I said earlier in the introduction, there's not a lot out there. What to do when a Christian is down in the valley of depression? There's not. I don't know why that is. There may be some reasons for that, but um, there's not. Well, David tells us, why he felt such distress. He tells us, uh, first of all, his problem was a chronic, prolonged struggle. Look at that first phrase. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? It seemed like forever. It seemed like it was without end. Now, we can usually sustain a, uh, a blow, even if it's a huge blow, if it hits us and knocks us off the bike of life. We pick ourselves up off the main street that we were riding on. But if it goes on for many days and many calendars, it just about puts us under, doesn't it? We're so weak and frail and puny and helpless, utterly dependent on God, that if it's a chronic situation, long-term we tend to faint. Now David is, you should know, writing out of years of being hunted and like he's a savage. He's living on the lamb for many, many years, being hunted by that sinful maniac of a king, King Saul. Here's the anointed of the Lord. He knew he was to be king. And he's living on the lamb. And uh, sometimes at the point of death, you read some of the stories, he, he, he fakes living among the Philistines at one point being uh, insane, lest they should kill him. No, he should have got an Academy Award for that. That was quite, a, quite an occasion. The other times, he's living in caves. I got news for you. That's not like the Hampton Inn. And one time, he was in there, and, and King Saul was in there using the cave as a restroom. He could have done him in. And they're hiding in the dark there. Caves are dark, you know. He's living on the lamb, the, uh, the anointed of God. And it didn't last a week or two. We could do that, Right? It went on for years, years. And those chronic long, that, it just takes all the gas out of us at times, doesn't it? Even our friends, if, uh, you, you know, you'll see that. Our friends always want us to get better. Are you feeling better? So you, have an, you have a sickness, and you know, are you better? Are you better? And, and uh, you'll notice it changes a little bit if the prognosis is not good. It's going to be long-term, and it's going to be long-term, and maybe death at the end. And a lot of times the, the calls get fewer and fewer because it's hard for those around to have the idea that you're not going to get better someday, but it's gradually down. It's chronic, long-term, down, down, down. It's, I don't know what to say. Listen, I got news for you. If you're the you don't need to say anything. I love you. I pray for you. I'm there. And show up. It's a ministry of presence. Shouts to people. You care for them. 
David's was a long-term situation, and so are ours at times, and it just, it takes us down. Job's was like that, right? Job's was a long-time situation, sitting, scraping the sores that were oozing, knowing he'd lost all his children. And his friends saying, well, you must have sinned, or God wouldn't have done this to you. Fess up. Job said, I did, I Oh, would there be some umpire who could help God and I that I could make the case or make the case for me? And you read that. Long term. Grinds us up and often spits us out, doesn't it? I don't like pain, but I'll take pain in the short term. Tell me that's going to hurt for a day or two. Don't tell me it's going to hurt the rest of my life. I don't know if I can endure that. You, you know, that's how we are made. Well, more than that, David goes on number two. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? What David means by this is that there was an apparent lack of blessing, God's blessing in his life. And it was far different from what he had enjoyed in the earlier years. How long will you hide your face from me? We, We don't speak this way, but to show your face or make your face shine on someone was to have their favor, their blessing, their, even their help, their enablement. And when it would speak of God, it would be to, to bask in his favor and visible blessing. And David certainly enjoyed that. Remember David and, and Goliath and uh, what God did there and using David and God's blessing to cause the so- stone to sink right into the glass and put down that giant of a man. And he was enormous, nine feet six. He'd be a great NBA prospect. And that was the favor of God and the blessing of God through David's life. And David had enjoyed that. And now it seemed not to be there at all. And you've had that. There have been times in your life where you've sensed the great favor and blessing. It was visible. And you said, wow, isn't the Lord good? Oh, he's so good. And then, and then there are times when you say, it's not like it was. I wonder if he's turned his face on me. I has in thoughts, has he abandoned me? Is there something in me? No, you check your sin list. It's short and it's daily and there's nothing there. And you go like, oh, well, what is it, Lord? That's what David's feeling here in this second how long, this lack of blessing, uh, that God was hiding his face from David. Well, I'm reminded that this can happen in family relationships. It can happen in our work. It can happen in our church. It can happen in our spiritual lives where we're experiencing maybe a a deep spiritual slump. It happens in our family and marriage. The early times of the wedding bliss. Some of you are married and you remember that. And we, live, we will live happily ever after. And you're just kind of the nuptials go off on their honeymoon and not a thought in the world except, you know, we'll be together forever and she thinks she'll be together with him and her, he with her and that'll be it. They'll ride off into the sunset. And before long, the reality of life hits. You got... You know, rent to pay, bills to pay, this to do, she's working, he's working, and uh, everything else, right? And you go like, whoa, what happened? And you go like, wow, it's different. 
Maybe God's not favoring. Maybe he's not blessing. It can happen in our family with our children. Your problems may involve your children in the early years. You know, it's, it's easy to raise children. Now, that's not encouraging to our, young, our mothers with young, but uh, it's uh, little children. Fred used to say, little children, little problem. Big children, big problems. I didn't know what he meant by that. We're learning more and more what that means. And when they're little, you know, everything's happy. We all went bike riding after dinner. I, if I wanted more time with faith, I, I, I hustled them off the bed at 7 and said, oh, it's time. They couldn't tell time then. And, that's, you know, like, and they go, okay, you know, they go to bed, and faith and I'd have more of an it, it doesn't work anyway. I think David tucks Faith and I in every night now. I'm sorry, David. You asked me not to say things like that. I take that back. Nobody heard that. But, uh, but problems with, uh, with older children and adult children, uh, you know, one can be rebellious. The whole family suffers. You, you say, well, we don't have any family fun anymore because has God forgotten? Is this going to go on forever? Our families can experience. How about our work? We can have problems there where we sense maybe God's not blessing like he was. In the early years, maybe you made great progress. You know, you were the rising star and, uh, and whatever corporate structure, and now you're sort of plateaued. And, or maybe uh, they uh, out, uh, outsized you, what do they call that? And so whatever, they let you go and... Downsized you, yes, outside, yeah, they put you out when they downsize you, that's the idea. And you go like, what's happening here, you know? It's, or you're in business and it started so well and maybe it's stagnant. You say, well, it's worth no longer blessing. Has he turned his face from me? Has he left, you know? And so these feelings at times will go through us when we're, our backs are maybe up against the wall, so to speak. It can happen in our church work as, as well. When, when growth of, uh, of the church maybe levels off and times of harvest give way to times of reorientation or times of testing in a, in a church family, and, and we go like, well, where's the favor and blessing of God that we earlier experienced? And we can, we can also wonder that as well. And finally, our own spiritual lives uh, it can happen this way that there may have been years when you saw many spiritual victories in your life and God's hand of favor and blessing. But now for many months, you're sensing that you're in a spiritual slump. And that happens as well. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak and that can happen as well. And so David says, how long will you hide your face from me? It can be of us as well. The third thing he says, there was, he says in verse 2, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Number three, I, I've, on your sheet, I have, there were very dark thoughts and almost uncontrollable emotions that overwhelm while we're in the funk of this time. I mean, we can really really be ungodly in the way that emotions just bubble forth. And, you know, your emotions are the window of the soul. You know that? Your emotions bubble forth and show what's going on in the innermost part of our being. And David here is, is, is issuing bubbling forth emotions that are dark and overwhelming. 
He says, I'm wrestling with my thoughts. Now let's face it, that some personalities struggle more with this than others. It's true. Some folks tend to be happier, don't they? Faithy's a, she's a beautiful woman, but she tends to be happy. I remember her father saying when I did, she was a happy baby. She smiled all the time. You know, and she is. She's a joyful woman to live. Doesn't mean she doesn't have sorrow and loss and pain and agony and all the rest, but she tends to be happier in that. There are other personalities that are more on the dark side. You know, is it genetics? Is it experience? You, you know, who knows what it is? And, and, and you, you know that. And you say, you know, the sun's shining, but in your heart of heart you say, yeah, but it's going to set real soon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or if the sun is shining beautiful today, but yeah, Tuesday I saw it's going to rain. And there are some personalities. It's a part of the fall. Whether we inherit it, whether we learn some of it, I don't know. It's a mixture probably. We're bent more towards the dark side. And some of you struggle with this more than others. It's true. It's true to life. And again, there's not much out there in Christian literature to help us with that. Also, let us say that physical factors also contribute to this, these dark thoughts and almost uncontrollable emotions of dejection or rejection or dark side. Physical factors pay uh, control. Illness will do it. You know that? Illnesses will do it. I think of the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, and I had occasion to read him quite a bit this week, and he was the prince of pulpiteers. That, that man back in the 1850s to the 1890s there in London, I had the joy of standing in the pulpit there a number of years ago in London, hoping some of it would rub off. <laughs> Do you know that that great man suffered severe bouts of depression? He was down in the darkest of valleys so, so very often. And do you know why? We now know why. We know even the cure. He suffered with gout so badly. That uric acid buildup would so inflame his joints and give him such pain that it just was oppressive to his spirit. Now here's, I, I would say, one of the top ten that I'm aware of, and God has his own, pulpiteers of all time, and through illness, suffered through the valley of such deep, deep, dark despair. Despairing at points even of his life. No, he died early. He died in his 50s. Illness plays a part in that. And I've seen it, even with great saints that have been stricken with uh, illnesses of all sorts, and it's heavy on the soul and uh, it cause, it doesn't have to, but it can cause a downcasting of the spirit. Illness, be aware of that. Be aware of that with one another when we minister to one another as a body. And give grace, give slack. Sometimes people just need to say, I feel like on this bed of illness that I'm all alone. I know I'm not alone, but I, I feel that. And I love that. That's okay, illness does that. More than illness, even tiredness and related type things, exhaustion can do that, where we 
feel we're at the end of it, day after day, not getting enough sleep or stressed out at work or what have you, and things, it taints the way we look at things and maybe the words we say, even as David wrestled with this. Well, the fourth and final, how long, at the end of verse 2, he says, how long will my enemy triumph over me? And certainly we would say uh, our enemies can also drive us to the feeling of abandonment. And David had enemies, uh, and you have enemies. A lot of times we don't use the E word, but uh, they oppose us. They'd be happy if bad things happened to us. Oh, that's too bad, you know. <laughs> and we do. We do as a nation. It's the, it's the foolhardiness of the liberal type of thinking that everyone in the world wants the same, and we all want a hug. That's a prescription for absolute national disaster. We have enemies, enemies. And we have enemies as believers. There are people out here that hate you just because you're a Christian. Don't be surprised by that. If you love the Lord and live for him, they will. The Lord told us that. And enemies, and David was oppressed by his enemies in the wearing him down. And Satan is, of course, our chief adversary. Peter tells us that, 1 Peter 5, 7, or, or, or 5, uh, 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 6, 7, and 8 there. And he walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. David said, my enemy, my enemy. Well, Elijah, remember Elijah? Elijah had that great victory in 1 Kings on Mount Carmel. I've stood there and imagined that very setting where the prophets of, of Baal, the altar, remember that, put the water on and and God delivers and then eliminates these. And then he's under threat from, from Jezebel. And after a great spiritual victory, he does a great marathon and he heads south. And he's so exhausted, he's hiding now under the threat of the enemy of the king and his wife that she is saying, your life is just about up. You're going to be dead. That he's He's under, in the wilderness, under a certain tree, and God in His grace ministers to him. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, if you want to read that, it's a wonderful passage. Here he's exhausted, feeling the, the heat of an enemy, feeling that all is lost, there's none but him left. And God approaches him and he says to him, and I love this, Elijah, what are you doing here? Isn't that a great question? What are you doing here? And he goes on babbling about, I'm the only one left, and the queen is going to kill me, and all the rest, feeling the heat of the enemy. In other words, again, take heart. Some of God's great spiritual giants have been in this valley. You're not alone. Take heart. Be encouraged by that, that even our enemies can drive us to the feeling of abandonment. Well, uh, the second, that's the first observation. The second observation, verses 3 and 4, uh, actually is the prescription for helping us overcome this valley of despair uh, when we find ourselves in it. And that is, the only way out of this despair is to pray. For this is the turning point. Verses 3 and 4 give us the, the substance of David's prayer. Look what he says. Look on me. He's talking to the Lord in prayer. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. 
Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. It is the turning point, the tipping point. That's a a word that's very common now as a result of a book in our culture. It's the tipping point in David's emotion, and he unpacks all the despair and the sense of abandonment now, and it's found only through the discipline, the practice of praying to the Lord. Now, I'm reminded we must pray consistently, and we must pray urgently, especially at such times as uh, these valleys. Hey, when David, uh, when such feelings uh, come, let me urge you, don't stop walking with the Lord and camp out in the valley of depression. Don't stop and camp there. We had the joy of studying Pilgrim's Progress last uh, fall with the men in men's fraternity, and that was a great joy. And Pilgrim, as he made the trek along the way to the celestial city, he stopped at certain points. One of those was the Valley of... Uh, of um, which one? Well, that was early, the Slough of Despond. Well, that fits. Don't camp out. Don't stay there in your trek. I was a Boy Scout, not like some of you. Some of you guys were real scouts. Some of you guys were Eagle Scouts. But I did love our, our campouts. And we'd go to different uh, campsites and pitch the tent and all the rest. And I never wanted to go home. It was so much fun after, well, one time it rained the whole time. I did want to go home then. But some of the other times, it was so much fun to be with the guys. And I always hated packing up and going home. Don't camp out and stay in the valley of despair. Don't do that. Don't waddle in that. Sometimes we do that. One doctor, Dr. Ed Weed, I think, wrote a book, Depression is a Choice. The things that happen, we can't always, we can't orchestrate that. But how we respond to what happens, we are responsible for. Don't camp out. Don't stay there. Get up, get moving, keep going, and uh, sooner or later, the sun will rise. Like David, we too must recover a sense of God's presence in our life. Don't camp there. B, prayer is the key. It is. It is. It's 101. Again, disciplines of a Christian life, prayer is key. We must learn to pray. And pray, pray when the sun's up, but pray especially in the dark times. Ian Bounds wrote, you know, the way we learn to pray is not to take a class in prayer. Although I did have a mini class in prayer, it was very, very, very good. Professor French at Grace Seminary taught that. It was wonderful. But even that, a part of the class was we all got on our knees and prayed. There, uh, as we met, we had our sandwich in the tower of uh, old McLean Hall, and then, and then we prayed together for the needs and Ian Bounds is right. It's not so much taught, it's, uh, it's learned in the doing. And so how do you learn how to pray? Here it is. You pray. You get in the closet. You get by yourself. Shut the door. And you pray. And unburden your heart and tell the Lord about your circumstance. Ask Him for grace and help. Tell Him that you're weak and falling and frail and just about ready to pour it all. He knows anyway but it'll unpack these emotions that are deep in your heart. And God will give you grace. He will. And I would say don't leave there until he begins to. Stay on your knees. 
pray. It's more than pray, you know, God is good, God is great, God, we thank you for this food, amen. Or now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You've got to get beyond preschool-type prayers like that and get to know the Lord. Pray, pray, and invite others to pray for you. The effectual, look at James 5, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much with God. God has designed and orchestrated life this way. Fervency means with heat. It means tell God, Lord, I'm, I'm in pain. It hurts. God loves passion. He made us to be passionate. And the intensity of David's prayer, how long? David wasn't just reciting some sort of liturgical, how long, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord. No, his, he's yelling out. I can hear him in the back of the cave. And, and, and almost despair, Lord, what? What? What's going on? What's going on? Prayer. Well, David's prayer included three re- requests, doesn't it? Look what he has. Number one is, look to me. Verse three, the being, look on me or look to me. This is in, in, in opposition or in opposite of the abandonment that he was feeling. He was feeling that, uh, that God uh, was, in fact, uh, not looking upon him. God, please favor me again, is in essence what he's saying, uh, or I die, essentially. Second request is uh, number two, answer me. He felt that God was no longer speaking to him. Oh, God, please answer me. Oh, please. And third, give light to my eyes. He was feeling near death. That's what that means. The light of the eye. When the light of the eye goes out, you're dead. And he was feeling that the light of his eyes or his life was quickly evaporating. God, please help me, save me, or I die. In essence, is what he was saying. Restore me to full physical and mental and spiritual life, vitality, and health. Help! Help! Help is what he is saying. Is it any different than what Peter said in 1 Peter 5? Casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Someday I want to learn how to fly fish. You know, Jonathan loved that movie, A River Runs Through It. I think because the boys there were pastor's kids. I think that was a part of it. And David, you liked that too, didn't you? It's a, the music to it. And they're out there in Montana. I mean, if you, how many of you are fishermen? Not too many. Wait a minute. How many of you are fishermen here? Okay, a few more there. I, I never, never go on fly fishing, but boy, that, you, know, you, keep, it's, you flick it, you cast it, you cast it, you cast it, and then a trout, a huge one, strikes it. At least it did in that movie. It was great. <laughs> That's the idea. That's what Peter says. You know what you do when you're burdened and overwhelmed? It's like fly fat. You cast it. You just keep casting it. Just casting all your cares upon him. For he cares for you. He loves you. Just keep casting. Keep casting. Keep casting. I don't know what burden it is that you're carrying right now. And all of us have burdens. I urge you, just keep casting it. Cast it. Cast it like you're fly fishing. And God said through that, he'll answer, he'll give grace, 
and he'll save us and restore us. Oh, we need that, don't we? I do. And the third and final observation, notice the humongous change now in David's heart. Again, his circumstances haven't changed, as far as I can tell. Uh, the third observation, though our situation may remain the same, and in David's it did, we can move from despair to a song. That's amazing. That is truly amazing. We can recover a renewed trust in the Lord. You know, when you're heavy burden, you can't sing. Have you noticed that? You can't sing when, you have, when, you're, when you're filled with grief. It's hard to sing. It doesn't come intuitively. You, I love to sing at Christian funerals some of the great hymns because uh, in a way it's a, it truly is a graduation service and we sing the great truths as a, as a family. And in the singing of those familiar old songs, it adds grace to our hearts that sensing we will miss mom or dad or our dear friend or brother, or whoever it is, granddad. But normally, one-on-one, -on -one, when things were overwhelmed, anguished, feeling this, we don't sing. doesn't happen. David is in a song here now. Look, listen to verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. That's that rich word, Hesed, that loyal, covenantal, faithful love of God that he has for us. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Here it's deliverance. I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he has been good to me. I mean, there is a dramatic change. How do you go from verses 1 and 2 to verses 5 and 6, you ask? The turning point was prayer. And now, still in this hot box situation, God has given him a song in his heart. And it's a song of joy, isn't it? David's circumstances, A, have not changed, yet a calm confidence now floods his soul. God gives a renewed trust to him in the midst of the storm. And it's beautiful. He is now singing a song to the Lord. He has recalled God's goodness to him in the past. That last phrase, for he has been good to me. He's cataloging and remembering all of God's blessing, all of God's care and of yesteryear. He is remembering that, recalling it, and again trusting in the Lord's faithfulness for the future. Jim Boyce, who's now in heaven, wrote this about this verse, and it's quite beautiful. He said, if you are suffering from a sense of feeling abandoned by God, which is what this psalm is all about, I cannot tell you when the emotional oppression will lift. But, Jim writes, it will lift. The curtain of despair will rise, and behind the veil you will see the blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who has been with you and has loved you. All the time. Isn't that encouraging? That is so beautiful. A song. A song in his heart. Wow. Well, I close the body of the message with some quotes from Charles Spurgeon. Look at these. These are so good. I just wanted you to have them. 
as Spurgeon wrote about this psalm, first quote, David's heart, in verses 1 and 2, was more out of tune than his harp. Isn't that a beautiful way of saying it? That's why this guy was the prince of pulpiteers. His heart was more out of tune with God than his harp was, and he was a great harpsist. Is that the word? I don't think that's the word. Harpsist? How do you say it, Mark? Harpist. I did say it right. Okay. Second quote, look at, The rain is over, in the verses 5 and 6, The rain is over and gone, and the time of the singing of the birds has come. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about life? There are times of rain and showers and darkness. There are. And they pass. And the time of the singing of the birds has come. The third, look at, prayer has so refreshed the poor weeper that he clears his throat for a song. Is that beautiful or what? That is beautiful beyond words to me. The next, the Lord returns our song after sorrow. It's the Lord's doing. He gives us a song. In the midst of the tears and the anguish, we think, we will never sing again. But we will. And finally, Spurgeon's last, listen to the music faith makes in David's soul. Is that beautiful? Listen to the music. David is sure of his faith, and his faith makes him sure. Well, lessons for our life. Number one. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, I say to you. Not that misery loves company, but be encouraged for this reason. For such feelings of abandonment are common to all Christians. They are. And yet, we'll never hear a testimony service. Tell us, each and all of you, when you felt this despair. I've never heard that yet. But it's there. Sometimes the lights go out. God allows that. And he's developing us, remember, to see if we'll keep walking, keep believing our beliefs, keep trusting, keep looking up. Our Lord Jesus suffered the same thing there in the garden. Number two, so be encouraged by that. Number two, know that even spiritual giants go through difficult times battling the loss of God's favor. Know that. It's just not the we people in God's family. It's all of us, great and small alike. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about we despaired even unto our lives. He thought there in chapter 4, he was going to die in the ministry that God had given. He eventually did. God delivered him from that. But even giants, Joseph and David, Elijah, and on and on and on. So it's not Job, and others. Number three, when you are in the valley of despair, what do you do? Pray, 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 and review God's past blessings in your life. That's the best time to name those blessings and count them one by one. At those times, especially, it will encourage you what the Lord has done, and you need that. Our memories are usually the size of a yardstick, and we need to 
to be reminded of all that God has done. We tend to forget. We're so focused today and maybe tomorrow, we forgot the road that God has carried us forward. So what do you do? Pray. Pray. Maybe, maybe God has brought that period of time in your life because he doesn't hear from you very much. There are, you know, things are going well. Hey, things are going well, Lord. I'll talk to you when I have a need. He said, oh, is that right? Here we go. I want to hear your voice, and just maybe so. Right? All right, number four. I can just cite it here. I do have the original. Do we have it? Okay, number four. Keep praying. Keep casting your burden upon the Lord until he gives you a song. Just say, okay, number three, pray, but how long? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying until, keep casting like that fisherman. Upon the Lord, your burden, and until he gives you a song. And number five and last, I remind you that Jesus was abandoned. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember that? He's, he quotes Psalm 22.1 as he hung on the cross. He was abandoned so that you and I never would be. He was forsaken. He truly was. That's the anguish of his heart. Jonah thought he wanted to abandon God, but when finally he sensed that he was abandoned by God in the belly of the, of the fish, he found he didn't like it at all, and he cried out to God for deliverance. I say all of that, that God has provided in his own Son salvation, that you might never be abandoned to the lake of fire. Well, there's something you must do. You must come to realize that you are a lawbreaker and a sinner. And the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to condemn. It's never to save you. For you and I are lawbreakers, and Christ has paid the price, the only price, to satisfy the wrath of God that hangs over your head and mine. You must come to understand your sin and the awfulness of it. Come to understand the wrath of God that hangs over you and over me. And come to understand God's great love for lost sinful men and women. That he would send his son to die as your sin substitute. To pay the price of my sin and yours. And you must receive him as your Lord and as your Savior. You must. Well, Psalm 13. More than the waiting room. Americans hate to wait, don't we? You're waiting there wondering, when's pastor going to be done? I'm tired of waiting, waiting, waiting. Then we get our hamburger. Do I have to wait another minute? Waiting, waiting. Do we have to wait at the airport? More waiting, waiting. We hate to do that, don't we? But Psalm 13 is far more than just waiting and sort of a frustrated sort of, it's deeper than that. It reaches down to the depths of despair, the depths of anguish. We begin to feel that God has abandoned us. He never has. He never has and he never will because he abandoned at one time his own son on the cross. And so the answer to the question of the title, what do you do when you feel abandoned? Pray, pray, pray.
May the Lord bless you with these up-and-coming weeks. We will miss you sorely. We will pray for you and just invite you to pray for us as we travel. And we'll be glad to bring pictures back and to bring a good report and, and look forward to seeing you when we return. Let's stand and be dismissed.